Hi, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and this is the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Saturday, May 9th, 2020. It's about 2.02 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. What's up, Ilan? Hey, Khadija. How are you doing today, Stanley? I'm doing pretty well, you know. Woke up happy. Um, And I'm really excited for today's episode. Are we on seven or eight? Does anyone know? We should, <laughs> we should i want to say eight but honest guess honestly <laughs> well this they is just real go by so fast <laughs> also the concept of time during the pandemic is just like it's the curve has flattened time has flattened and i can never figure out what what day it is mm-hmm. um but i'm <laughs> really ex- yeah okay great so i'm really excited for episode eight we have ria Kalori here um she is an AI researcher and multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary artist working on AI and art that are anti-oppressive and queerly beautiful. She's currently completing, uh, you know what, I'm sorry, uh, Rhea, what, what pronouns do you prefer? Uh, yeah, she or they is great. Okay, great. Sorry, I'm reading through the bio and I was like, mm, am I messing this up? <laughs> um, yeah, they are completing their PhD at Stanford AI Lab, supported by the Open Philanthropy AI Fellowship and the PD Soros Fellowship for New Americans. How are you doing today, Ria? I'm doing great. Happy to have a nice call at the morning of a Saturday. Yeah, thank you. We were so excited when you said Pacific Standard Time because Elon and I are based <laughs> in New York. Um, so when we schedule things at like 9 and 10 a.m., Stanley, who's in San Diego, is getting up mm-hmm. at like dawn. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. I'm yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, and the person who put us in touch was uh, Bebe Berhane, who we had on last week, and I was really excited going to see your talk that you did at Nor Nor, Nor- Rips last year, um, mm-hmm. moving the f- the question from is this a good machine learning model to um, how can we how can we intervene in developing these models in order to shift power. Um, Would you like to talk a little bit about that and kind of explain what that means to our listeners? Yeah. um, So I think, you know, one thing, so, you know, AI has a lot of um, artificial intelligence. AI has a lot, uh, a long history of like, maybe not always being socially aware, right? Um, There aren't like a lot of uh, social scientists and sociologists that are like well known or, you know, being part of the core conversations. But something that has happened is um, that slowly shifted and more people have been tried to ask these questions about social good. But one of the most common ways they get phrased is, okay, like, is this machine learning model good or not? Right. And you can look at a lot of different models and ask that question. And I think it becomes like an almost vacuous question because you can call a machine learning model. You can say like one person can say it counts as a good model because it's um, it's like helping to challenge uh, like police who are causing harm to black communities or something like that. Right. Um, But someone else can say, oh, this model is doing good because it is helping the state enforce rules. And and there are like wildly different values at play, clearly. But they sort of all don't have like a reason to say that they're not creating a model for social good. Um, And 
the way that I think that conversation can shift to be much more useful to this goal of making it like a more just space and a, a space that is more pro-social and helping people is to instead of just holding ourselves to this question of, oh, is my model good? To instead ask this question, how does my model shift power? Who is it shifting power to? You know, who who are who uh, owns this model? Is it a big tech company who's being um like classified or analyzed by this model and even like in the technical details of the model, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm an AI researcher and I'm a lot around a lot of these uh, very technical folks who sort of can think that they're maybe not working with power, but in fact, even those technical details contain a lot of power shifts where if, um, if for example, the people who have given you data so you can create a model, if there's no technical way for them to revoke that data or remove that data or intervene in how the, like what kind of model is allowed to use that data, um, then, then that is like both a technical and political way of shifting power away from those people, right? And, you know, a lot of us know that those data sources tend to be those who already have the least power and are sort of being exploited for that data. So I think this is just like one of many examples where both the the models itself, like the model in society, when it's placed in society, shifts power, but even the technical details of it are already largely tending to shift power a certain direction. And I feel like that's a really useful question for us all to be asking. So. I think that something something I see in, in my experience is the way a lot of these things get taught is you have some technical course and it's broken up into these kind of methodological modules. And then at some point in the course, maybe early on, maybe later, there's an almost like ethics module. And it just gets kind of broken out into like, okay, we've spent most of the semester talking about XYZ methods. Um, here's this other thing that's really important, ethics. Um, and I think that one of the things that, that we kind of saw when we were looking through your body of work is, is the way in which you're framing that differently. Um, and I was hoping you could almost walk through a, a methodological framework where you're approaching a problem with the power constraints in mind. Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I think that Part of what happens when you sort of truly accept that work is a, that your work is about power, right? your technical work, your computer science work, your algorithmic work is about power, is that you have to build different things. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest struggles is like you can't go. It's really hard to just go part way and like make the thing you already want to build like slightly more ethical, right? Which is kind of what the the classroom framing is. It's like, oh, you can basically do everything your technical training has taught, but like here, just like add this thing in at the end, add this like add a few sentences at the end that sort of say something about its situatedness, right? It's like ethical status. Um, but I think really, um, instead of having a framework where that's at the end, you sort of have to say like, well, from the start. Um, am I 
am I trying to build something that satisfies a particular need, right? Like, are there, are there people that are calling for this? Who's calling for it? What are, like, if I really believe that I'm building for a certain kind of person, um, like, if I, if I believe I'm building for my communities, like my own vulnerable communities, um, am I talking to them? Am I, like, having lots of conversations with them outside of my research and, like, you know, in relation to my research to better understand what people really want from these technologies? And I think that, like, from that, you then start to say like, okay, well actually, you know, what one of the things that happened for me was I like did a little bit of fair machine learning work, but then I felt like as I really talked to my friends who um, are in, uh, who are doing like activism work and social justice work and uh, thinking about marginalized communities and advocating, like, did they really see the, like, were they really excited about like the kind of fairness work that I had been trained to do where I sort of was just like trying to make an existing model slightly more fair. Um, and like a lot of times for me, for the kinds of fair models I was building, like I, I didn't actually feel like that. I didn't actually feel like people were particularly excited about that. Um, whereas maybe um, there are different questions like, oh, well maybe if the model's really transparent, um, maybe that's already like slightly more exciting because then anyone can point to what part of it feels unfair and you have like a much broader definite, like many people get to decide what's fair, right? So I guess the, the point of this kind of story is that I think the methodology um, ceases to be like a start with the step of like building your technical work and then move forward with some ethical constraints um, and maybe I'm saying I think that the answer to your question is that there isn't one methodological framework, but really, like, you have to be already prioritizing having lots of conversations, then you sort of come to the needs that feel the most, um, like, really needed and relevant to the communities that you want to be supporting. And then every step of the way, you re-ask yourself this question of, like, how is this technical detail shifting power? And one heuristic of that is, like, are the vulnerable communities that I represent or that people around me represent, are they excited about exactly how this shifts power? Um, and then, you know, continually having this process of being willing to question it at any step and, and say like, okay, if I found something bad here, I can shift. And like, that is sort of my responsibility until I kind of see that as a dynamic process. Um, so, so this is me stretching and saying <laughs> you're, this desire for like uh, one methodological process, I think maybe has to expand to like this like very long um, willingness to like keep shifting as you find new information. Was that a lack I, of answer? <laughs> a little bit, but I think I think the key point that that I like I would take away from that is is this question of like are the people affected excited? Like that it's it's a very simple concept, but like you have tons of things that get like techies excited, right? Like, I know for a fact there are things I get excited about. Then I go tell Khadija, and she's like, you see how that's problematic? And I'm like, oh, fuck, you know, like, I, I didn't think about it like that because I was just excited about the technology. But like, no, I said something wrong. Um, and I think just framing it about, like, are the people affected excited becomes a really valuable framing. Maybe not an yeah. absolutist all the time. That's how you should frame things. But, but making sure you're asking that question, I think, is a great way to put it. Yeah, I love that question as a heuristic. I actually like I'm reading a lot of machine learning papers right now, like traditional like classic machine learning papers that are kind of like considered the the best papers in the field. And some some colleagues and I are trying to think about um like a better analysis of like, you know, how what are these papers really doing? What do they tend to do with power like we're talking about? And we came up with like this long list of questions we could ask about these papers, but the question that like 
again and again felt like it gave the richest results for us was for us to just look at a paper and say like would my most radical friend like what would they say about this paper right the person like the friends in my life who aren't um who don't have the same technical training I I do but have like these really amazing justice perspectives like what would they think about this and and that feels like it gives you so much so quickly to just answer that question yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things, I mean, first of all, what I loved and kind of going through your work and preparing for this episode is that you have these like kind of three containers, I guess, where I see your work, but like the community organizing, the technical piece of the machine learning and AI research itself, and then also your art practice. Um, and what I appreciated about that is where I struggle with the AI machine learning crowd is that... Um, the the techno the development of the technology has outpaced the like regulatory legal bodies um so mm-hmm. i find that space to be very immature and then you know there's like references to sts if you're going to a lot of these like fairness accountability transparency i guess now it's fact star um mm-hmm. conferences it just feels that you know when you're looking through the citations the world in which is being referenced as far as like critical race theory or like social theory um, is very shallow and often like it's almost in a circle of just like the same people being cited over and over again. Um, And one of the things that I was just curious of like, who are you thinking about um, and who are you reading when you're like asking these questions about, is it a reformist reform or an anti-reformist reform? Um, And like, is that within STS studies or science and technology studies? Or is that um, in other fields, like who's influencing your sense of kind of what kind of world we want to imagine as you're thinking about the technology itself? Yeah. um, So there's, there's so many people, I think like, yeah, coming up with um, finding new people who are writing about this is probably one of my favorite ways to spend time. Uh, Ruha Benjamin, I think, has written so many beautiful things at the intersection of critiquing these technologies, but really emphasizing this piece about uh, about imagining something different, like imagining something more just. Um, she has these beautiful quotations about how, you know, so many of us live inside of someone else's imagination and that we live in a world that was constructed by someone else's desires. And so coming back to our imagination is can lead us to like realizing what kind of just worlds we want. So I, I highly recommend um, any of her books or talks. Um, other folks, um, yeah, there's just so many. I think um, there's uh, the first time that I one of the first times that I really like you know sat down for a full day and like really tried to hunt for these um to really yeah to really dig for these works um imagining something better with technology was um what was me finding this zine called a people's guide to AI by Mimi Onwoha and Mother Cyborg um both the authors I, I believe they both identify as black queer um feminists in in New York, I think, and they're artists and sort of technological creatives. And, and they, again, write, uh, they're writing for the people, right? Like that, that's their statement. And it it's sort of this thing that they, they wrote it with the intention of being as concerned about the technology as it was about oppression. Um, and yeah, I, I, I can list so many things. Maybe I can send you a, a long reading list, but some of these people are really exciting to me. 
Oh, cool. I, I definitely, I love Ruha. I love Mimi. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Mother Cyborg, but um, yes. I'm definitely excited about the People's Guide to AI. I guess part of my question is thinking about a lot of the community organizing that I see, similar to like People's Guide in AI. I'm thinking about like our data bodies um, mm-hmm. and their digital playbook. A lot of it is focused on kind of harm reduction, I guess, and like mitigating mm. um, the impacts of automated decision-making systems and just even making them legible to people when they're, you know, interacting with them through, for example, like human services or just like walking through the smart city um, and yeah. not necessarily aware um, of being surveilled or where does that data go. Um, but I'm also curious... I think we're like in an interesting moment right now with COVID-19 because a lot of the tech spaces that were very loud pre-plague, um, besides the privacy people around the contact tracing apps, to me have been relatively quiet. Um, and the Mimi did a really interesting project around missing data sets. Um, mm-hmm. And just like the irony or like the, the juxtaposition of on one hand, black and brown people being disproportionately surveilled and their data being constantly collected. But on the other hand, when we look at social issues, like, for example, maternal health, there's so much uh, data and information that's missing. I think ProPublica, when they covered that piece, there weren't accurate um, birth certificates and death certificates. So they went looking through GoFundMes. Um, to try to track down people who had um, passed away or their child had passed like during childbirth. So I'm wondering, like thinking about like this moment right now, we're 50 odd days like into the shelter in place order. um, What do you think are the types of data that we should be collecting? What are the ways in which um, people should be developing research programs or what would you like to see right now in this moment where there feels like there's a need for data and for communities to work in partnership with researchers. But what, what, what would that look like? Um, and not to just put that all, I, I'm like interested in co-imagining with you. I'm just like kind of trying yeah. to think through that even as like, I know for me personally, it's just really horrifying seeing what feels like almost like ethnic cleansing as far as black people being disproportionately impacted, but also feeling like we have no accurate data. Yeah. Um, Oh man, yeah, like the the what technology can do in relation to this pandemic uh feels really complicated to me. I think honestly, I think you know, maybe we want to jump over this step quickly, but I think the first step is um that I feel whenever I think about the technological response is to tell a lot of people to pause building, um maybe to stop building. I think that there is a lot of technologists that feel like, oh, if they can just like push any technology like that collects data in some way and analyzes it in some way, that that will um, that will somehow help because at least they created something and they don't realize that actually like creating something is not neutral. Like it could actually do more harm than not pushing anything. So for me, it feels like that like has to be the first sentence you say. Um, and then after that, to try to think, well, what do we really want to be building um, yeah, I think the data we want, you know, I I wish I knew. I think that, yeah, it, it's like, it's looking at, I mean, maybe it's still around needs. Maybe it's like, what do folks who sort of like represent this data really want? And maybe like what I want to have collected is like, you know, maybe 
I, I guess especially these like decentralized data efforts, those feel really meaningful, right? So like folks who are um, on the ground working with like, um, you know, one thing we didn't talk about like is like communities like homeless communities or other communities that are um, unhoused and like, can they sort of collect data themselves through these sort of like organizations that work with them in order to like advocate for housing, which is like just a big thing happening in San Francisco right now, right? It's like all these demands um, that are attempts at like sort of summarizing the data in order to advocate for immediate housing for anyone who needs it. Um, and and there's sort of similar things with like, oh, well, you know, if, um, yeah, I mean, just like your last episode um, that I was just starting to listen to, uh, where you you sort of talk about how the stories of folks in in prisons um, are like just by not having those stories told at all, by not um, having any data on those, you sort of get to have these um, yeah these terrible conditions which are just like so amplified during COVID. And I think some of the folks you're talking to are trying to collect that data and tell those stories. And by that, you're finally seeing people um, willing to listen to that data, right? Um, and advocating again in San Francisco there's so many like close close prisons move prisons like change like you know abolish some of these these jails that have been in San Francisco for a long time and like those movements I think are using data but also using like the the transform transformativeness of the COVID-19 moment to try to push for something that's that's you know more radical or more revolutionary like you're saying not just a small reform. Uh, jumping in really quickly, I, I love that your approach to this, it's, um, I keep thinking about the last thing you said in your Europe's talk, where you, uh, you pretty much called out all researchers and said, if any of your research is not creating a new gl global optimum, but it's just reifying the current optimum that exists, then you just need to throw it all away and kind of start over. Um, and it seems to be the way you're approaching this question. I think I first... Um, I'm wondering how have your colleagues or people in other institutions uh, responded to this? Yeah, um, it's really interesting. So I think the, um, right, there's like a few different groups, uh, like within AI as a community, there's probably like a few different groups that are going to respond to this question differently, right? So um, the group that is maybe like the, the the these like core AI researchers that have sort of never really thought about um, have never maybe heard words like um, like radical or reformism or um, or like even thought deeply about justice. Um, some of them I met someone who didn't know words like queer the other day in an AI context. Um, so yeah, so people who are really isolated from this, I think that it's it's like really challenging for them. I think that they don't really, um, yeah, they, they like don't know what to do. And oh, I mean, one actually very specific response was um, Abeba and I were talking recently about, um, about, about these statements, right? About like calling for radical AI, about calling for not just this incremental reformism. And some, one of her friends had written back to her and said, hey, like all of your critiques are amazing, but how do I like? What specifically is radical AI? Like, what 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 does it actually concretely look like? Like, how do I know that this isn't just like a vacuous, like nice little play of words, 
right? And so I think that one thing you have to do is like start listing tactics for people the same way you have tactics when you movement build or when you create any creative project, like there are radical AI tactics that include like, you know, are really answers to like, how can you spend time right now that would count towards radical AI or towards this, right, towards this like big shift. And some of them are, you know, critical technical practices where you're building not just to solve a problem, but to, you know, really highlight and critique a problem. Um, and, and there's like so many other practices that I could, you know, we could talk about more later if you want um, of these specific tactics. So that feels like one big response is, okay, if you're going to make this claim, like give me tactics for what this actually looks like. Um, the, the second group of people is, um, I think that where it sort of originally felt to me like no one in my AI spaces were particularly um, in line with my, these values, right? These values around justice. Um, no one, not no one in the world, but no one that was like being centered, no one that was at a university like Stanford with me. Um, I eventually found that not to be true, right? And like, as I started talking a lot more about these things, as I gave this talk, um, I found a lot of people around me that were like, yeah, I actually agree with all of these values, but I don't believe, I've never seen examples around me uplifted of people that maintain these values while still doing AI work and AI research. Um, and the response that they gave was, Either some of them said, like, that is why I just do AI during the day and then at home, at the end of the day, go home and try to do things that are in line with my justice values. Um, or they said, well, this ultimately, like, really mattered to me. So I just left the field of AI. Um, and, and I think that, like, for those people who actually already had these these desires to be more just, but didn't see any peers or any models or, that were being uplifted of how to do that. I think just like forming community makes a big difference. And maybe that was a lot of the roots of what became the Radical AI network um, or the Radical AI project was just like connecting a lot of people that wanted to be deepening their work, wanted to be doing Radical AI, but couldn't find models around them. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like those have been the two major responses um, and and the attempt to respond to the responses is to articulate one the tactics and two the community building um, for for people on the spectrum of not understanding it at all to really wanting to get involved. Yeah, I'm just thinking a lot of that resonates with me. I remember feeling really frustrated. I can't remember now if it was January of this year, or early at the end of last year, but AI now had a symposium. That was titled "The Harmful uh, the Pushback Against Harmful AI," and I just found that so amorphous and vague. Like, what 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 does that mean? Um, what is pushback? What does it mean? Harmful mm -hmm. to whom exactly? Um, so for me, it's a question of tactical, but also like ideologically. Like, what are our aims? Um, and in 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 the interest of whom? And like, how does it relate to people who've done like prison abolition work? When we're critiquing yeah. Compass, you know, which is an uh, automated decision-making system around um, prison recidivism, um, is the goal just to expose the way in which it, like, embodies racial inequity? Is the goal to, like, get uh, AI ML researchers to figure out how to break people out of prison? Like, is that, our, you know, it's just... There seem, I often feel frustrated because either you have people who are openly like 
tech bros who really don't care whether people are systematically excluded or not. Or you have people who kind of um, token or like gamify diversity and inclusion and like make a concerted effort to use the right pronouns or, you know, cite a trans person on every other page. But it's not clear how this actually like influences and is infused into a worldview and like the development of the technology itself. Um, so in that light, I was wondering, could you just define for us in your own words, um, what is radical AI in like two sentences? Yeah. Um, so, so part of the definition that we kind of like collectively came up with in the the community that I'm a part of was that, yeah, I'll actually just read out what we, what we co-created. So the sentences were, um, first, uh, you know, referencing the Angela Davis quote, uh, radical simply means grasping things at the root, right? That's like her quotation. And then from that, radical work begins with a shared understanding that there is a root problem. Society distributes power unevenly. Growing from these roots, radical AI examines how AI rearranges power and critically engages with the radical hope that our communities can dream up different human AI systems that help put power back in the hands of the people. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Just because, um, you know, on the surface, I see that there's like words and jargon that like reference being inclusive, but it's not clear all the time um, kind of where people stand. So that's that's really helpful. And I'm excited about that project. Um, yeah, I was just wondering. And, and like, think, a, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to add, like, I, I think that, um, like you said, like the the principles or like the guiding principles have to at some point get clear. And I think like that definition is very much just this like tr- attempt to summarize briefly what these principles are. But I think the sentence, like the the principles are really about um, centering all of these communities that have been pushed to the margins, right? To recognizing, to recognize that power is distributed unevenly, meaning specifically people of color, black, um, indigenous women, queer, uh, poor, disabled, all of these marginalized communities and others, um, their voices specifically are those that have been pushed away by the way power is arranged. And so those voices specifically are the ones that need to get re-uplifted as we try to dream of different types of technological systems. Yeah, no, dope. And it's not easy to summarize this. And I feel like I, every I guest that comes on here, I'm like, can you please solve all structure and equity? Like, how are we going to address this? And how are we going to get out of our houses? And like, how can we make all of this happen? Um, because I'm personally like kind of going insane in a two bedroom with seven people. Um, yeah. But the, the other question I have for you is just like on a personal note, can you talk a little bit about what drove you to become um, a machine learning researcher and kind of how does... I guess yeah. Like, what are what are your motivations, and what what do you feel like are the tools that are the technical tools or training that are you're you're receiving that you feel like are really critical to this moment? Yeah. Um, so I yeah, my story of how I came into AI. Um, I I think like I actually loved computer science like the first time I ever wrote code. Like I I'm very lucky that like I you know there was. Um, one chance for me to to like take a coding class um, a long time ago, like at the at the very end of high school, like this was an option available to me. And like from the first time I did it, I actually found it so beautiful. And I had um, I had a bunch of friends at the time who um, most of them like did weren't really interested in technical work um, or technological work. 
um and they like several of them really loved language like like you know learning different languages and like studying you know that that world and i remember trying to explain to them that to me like learning code felt like it was this combined beauty of learning a language right like learning its nuances and eccentricities but then at the end of the day having it also be generative in that like just by speaking the language you could create something new um and yeah i, I like i think that i've always been sort of in love with this um and in in college i sort of continued to um to like pursue this computer science thing um that i found just like really enjoyable and intellectually just beautiful and exciting to work on um but it it was kind of in um in parallel to my um my other i don't know like my other identities right like i was doing it in parallel to writing about um, racialized experiences or thinking about queerness and survivorhood and all these other things, right? So these were two parallel tracks. Um, but I, I found this project towards the end of college that was about, um, it was about stories and it was about creating AI that could understand stories or turn stories into concepts or generate new stories. Um, and and that I think was like a really, a really important point for me because it felt like the very start of connecting my uh, my technical training in computer science and AI and machine learning to my values and like what I not just enjoyed but wanted to be putting into the world and wanted to be contributing to, um, and and this this sort of like these things I think now the the path forward is just has been continuing to refine that that work um so you know i i bring a lot of um experience with uh coding and artificial intelligence and machine learning that means a lot of understanding um like what it means to manage to from a lot of um data to create uh, create systems that can understand something and contribute something back to those people, um, or maybe even more interestingly, can generate something that is like generative and beautiful um, for these communities. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of learning math. It's a lot of learning statistics. Um, and I think um, just from your question of like, what is the what are the technical things? Like, I think those are the technical tools that I just personally um, love. And then it's about like constantly holding myself accountable to knowing that getting that training is quite a privilege and um and I want to deploy all of the resources I have back to the values that matter um yeah so um I'm actually an artist myself I'm a dancer um and I find that I um it it's a toss up between using my creativity for like obvious professional or commercial purposes and then uh, always going back to a creative practice that allows me to be um, either soft with myself or very critical of um, the society that I'm living in or the issues that I, I feel are pressing to me or to others in that moment. Um, and I love the work that you're doing with your data painting. How, have, mm. how has your, um, your creative practice in, with data uh, influenced slash impacted the way that you now move through your uh, machine learning research? Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. And I love the like bringing up of how this creative work 
um, is about like being soft with ourselves. Um, yeah. So like this, this data painting process that you mentioned was, um, you know, I, I like really been reflecting on wanting to, you know, if I was going to make all these claims about how AI could perhaps be softer and more tender and more generative, um, I felt like I had to really like intimately experience that and like intimately act through that claim. And, and that's part of what the data painting came out of was, okay, what's the smallest version that that could look like? Well, what if every day I just fill like a small square with colors and shapes that constitute some, some sort of like data about my day, about like the colors represent um, you know, the, the ways that I spent my day, the, like the, um, composition represents something about how my day felt, right? These sorts of things. And I, I don't have an answer yet of exactly, um, exactly like what, how this will change the, like the technical work I'm able to do. But I think it, it is, like part of it will be this very slow process of constantly coming back to like softening what data can be, softening my ideas around machine learning, and hopefully then forcing me to, when I am talking in professional contexts about data and AI, like having that still be in my mind and like in my heart, right? Um, and and thus creating more beautiful things. Um, and I think, yeah, the data painting is like one, um, like a, a very first experiment with that. And I think you could, one thing that I've been trying to, to push myself to start is like, could I do um, a, a process of like, of machine learning that looks like that, where I say, um, maybe, well, so I'll, I'll bring up, there's, there's a really beautiful data art experiment called Dear Data. Um, and by, it's by two artists named Georgia Lupi and Stephanie Posavec. And they basically wrote postcards to each other every, every, every week, I think for a year, um, where, um, where they shared some data about their week through a visualization. And it was this like very, very joyous, intimate relationship with data. And I've been thinking for a long time since I first came across that project about, could you, could you try to do the same thing with AI? Could I start a practice where like maybe once a month I try to build a machine learning model that can be anything, but it's like, it's supposed to relate to joy and intimacy. And it's supposed to be a thing that I am excited um, to share with someone who's important to me. And it's supposed to feel really beautiful and tender. Um, and, and I'm like continuing to refine what, what it would need to be to, to feel like all those things, right? Because I'm so used to thinking of AI in these professionalized contexts that, that don't feel like most of those words. Um, but, but I've been forced to like really think through, well, what kind of AI would feel like that? And part of that for me has been realizing, well, classification usually doesn't feel like that, but generative models sometimes do. And like clustering models, like, huh, like there's something interesting there of like, if I take all of this data, maybe from people that, you know, are excited to have their data clustered in some way so people can sort of see their connections and like who's closest to them among kind of really interesting axes. Um, 
that feels like it it could be something that maybe I would feel is like still feels joyous and tender but I I'm definitely still trying to work through um if if I can create AI that feels like all those qualities and softness that we're talking about yeah um I love the um softness tenderness these terms are not at all um described or discussed in the field of AI. And I think any technical field, it seems so antithetical to this objective, hard truth that um, AI and other technical fields try to um, kind of suppose exist or is standard. Um, uh, bringing it back to this idea of shifting power. Um, and I, I just find so much beauty in these data paintings and in creating and expressing through data. And we often are seeing these uh, STEM initiatives in lower income or of color neighborhoods, focusing on just the coding aspect. Um, what work have you seen or have you been interested in doing in order to um, bring data expression into um, other communities that mm. might not have access to this kind of data work? Yeah, um, that's a beautiful question. Um, so one person that comes to mind is, um, oh man, she's such a, let me see if I can find, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember her, the full context of her project names, but, um, but there's this, um, friend of mine named Ari, um, who, who works on, um, who works with like Tish in New York and like the, um, like in this context of like data and justice and she's an artist, right? She's not um, like an AI trained person like me. She's like her training itself is an art. Um, and she did some beautiful work a few years ago um, teaching how to like teaching code as an artistic practice. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular at the time, and I think she still continues this practice of she like codes um, visual sets to go along with her DJ sets. Wow. Um, and like, that's really cool. Um, and, and there's a bunch of people actually, there's, there's a school in New York, um, called the school for poetic computation. And, and there are, they have so many things, I think, at this intersection of like, well, what if you, um, yeah, like, you can code any visual and the visual represents something that's like beautiful to you and special to you and it doesn't sort of need to be useful in a traditional like sense that code is supposed to be it can be just like in and of itself an intimate experience um yeah so I think some of these have been um have been really special and exciting to me I was actually hoping to spend this quarantine time I, I was planning to spend it at this school for poetic computation but of course um as many of us might, my, my plan sort of dissolved. Um, but yeah, one actually, maybe one other example of this, because um, you mentioned, right, like not just the coding, but like the data practice itself. One example that's been kind of fun for me recently is I wanted to have like the smallest possible example of this, but in my actual department at school. Um, and there were a lot of people there who like don't really identify as artists, so um, so there's a question of like, what would it look like to have like a slightly tender, slightly data-ish practice for us to do? And what 
we came up with was we had a bunch of, um, we called them humans of AI conversations. And we invited these folks um, who, who were AI people um, to start by drawing on a whiteboard for everyone, just a graph of um, their happiness over the course of their, like their career with AI or over the course of like their entire, their, their life since they first found like their like interactions with AI. Um, and even that was, I think, that, that maybe feels like the easiest possible thing you can ask for someone that already feels like a tender kind of data. Um, and people ended up talking about, you know, there were peaks and valleys. There were peaks when they found um, intimate relationships or marriages, and there were valleys when there were divorces. And there were also like doing research um, was just like almost every person who came up said like the doing research part was just like, peak valley, peak valley, peak valley, like every day um, for, for their entire research careers. Um, and, and yeah, like I, since, you know, at the time, the context I was in was my department, um, that that's the folks I did that with. But I think I would be actually even more excited to see um, people who aren't starting with any AI background start to come into that sort of tender data exercise. Uh, just on, on this topic, the, the first thing when we started talking about this uh, that came to my mind was how much of this is, is like really architectural in the spaces we're in. I don't know what it's like at Stanford, but Cornell Tech is all glass and metal and concrete. And you just spend all this time in these just like hard, shiny, reflective spaces. And the number of PhD students who just come and say like, why can't we just like have hardwood floors and a carpet? Mm. It, it feels like such a small thing, but it, it it's, I think, a fascinating reflection of like who was building these spaces, who was designing these spaces, and then who's inhabiting them now all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's not so much a question, but I also had another point. I, I love these happiness graphs, I, I did the vulnerable line graphs. I remember I got to sit in, there was a, a new professor at Cornell, it was his first year, and I'm, I'm probably, I'm not going to say his name, but the PhD students invited him to just kind of like do a, do a kind of like a casual lunch talk where he could talk about his work and we could all kind of get to know him. And he put up this plot of his health over the course of his PhD and postdoc, like basically up until the day. And so he had all these different plots and one of them was like, weight loss and weight gain. And he was like, yeah, you know, when I'm stressed, I eat. And it's just, it was so vulnerable about like, yeah, mm-hmm. like there are times in your PhD that are like really, really hard. Uh, and yeah. then I like, I got this great postdoc and I was doing better. I started playing basketball again. And mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think there is immense power in going to people we like and respect and asking them to be vulnerable, right? Like, you know, we all kind of have this situation where like there's imposter syndrome and we're like, oh, having a, having a bad day and we don't know where we stand. And like this is kind of it's this has been said before. Right? Like this isn't anything new, but the, the like value in going to someone you respect and them being like, you know, what? let me tell you about all the times I was rejected or like all of the papers mm-hmm. that didn't get accepted or um, I don't know. I think there's I think there's immense value of that and kind of doing it in this this artistic way. I find incredibly beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I I uh thank you for those thoughts. I really agree. I think um there's such like a veneer of shininess to it all where it's like mm. 
the like the work is supposed to feel the same way as the tech itself where it's just like shiny and clean and and there's like yeah to to bring back these questions of like asking each other to be vulnerable shows that none of that shininess is true right like the process of thinking about all these things is hard and sometimes tragic and sometimes angering and that's sort of that's revealing that is how it becomes more enjoyable for everyone doing it, but also more accessible to everyone who would feel scared because they knew they could never fit into the shininess. I think I think that's one of the things I like so much about getting the opportunity to work with engineers who are not computer scientists, right? You work with mm. like mechanical engineers or biochemical engineers, and they have like a deep understanding and knowledge of like physical messiness. <laughs> which I don't know, like it just, it makes a lot of sense to me when you see how messy the world actually is when you're working on whatever you're currently working on. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I think, I think we're, we're reaching the 50 minute mark and I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about kind of things you're working on and things that are coming up. I, I saw you have this, this uh, thing on your website, looking inside a language model, which I'm super excited about. Uh, which yeah. I would love it if you could talk about, but if you have other things that are kind of up and coming, we'd love to hear about them. Yeah. Um, so some of the things I'm working on right now are, yeah, I'm like continuing to be a big part of building this radical AI network. Right. So that's like this big group of people and we're putting, we like tried really hard to be really slow and to not rush to say like, hey, here's who we are and here's how you should be, right? Because there's so much work that's been done so long. But finally, after a year of like really digging into that literature, we're starting to put out um, like official uh, lists of principles and essays and tactics um, to try to to get really explicit um, and uplift all the work we've found. And so that's something that I'm really excited to be working on right now. Um, that work will, uh, like, as it comes out, will all get published uh, at on the website, which is the radicalaiproject.org. Um, so that's one piece of the radical AI uh, kind of conceptual stuff. And then the really practical embodiment of that is exactly the project you brought up. Um, so this, one of the things I, I got to do was um, I worked on this team that had access to this really big language model um, that, that was, like, at the time, like, state-of-the-art is, is still pretty far up there. And, and what that means, right, it's a language model in that it, um, it can take a, like a file, a, a text file, and as it looks at each word, it kind of develops this internal mathy representation of what it's seeing. And then it spits out um, what it believes is like a good next word and then a next sentence and so on. Um, so it's like a text generator. And the question is like, what is it doing in the middle? Um, which is this, um, yeah, it's this rich question. And I think that sometimes we lose the richness of this question by this metaphor of the black box, right? So the black box can be useful to critique, but the, the machine learning model itself, it's not really a black box in the sense that no one can look inside it. It's like this box of mush, right? Where there's all of these numbers, like all of the words are being turned into numbers and they're being turned into more numbers, and then eventually you get the generated sentences, right? And the reason I make this distinction between the black box 
and this like kind of really interesting box of mush is that that means you can untangle it. Like you can go in and look well at every layer inside the model, every time the words are being turned into like another set of numbers and then another, and then another, you can, um, you can pull out the representations inside that box and you can say, um, so you can, you can look at things like, um, at, at the, fir the first layer, what is, what words is the model looking at, right? Like what words is it considering very similar to each other? What words is it considering very different? Um, and you can do this for every layer of the, of the model's reasoning. And you can, this is a way of meaning, like once you have this accessible, um, anyone can ask a question like, well, is this model seeing um, like doctor and nurse as very different words or very similar words, right? And this is the question of bias, right? Is nurse associated with women very strongly in this model? Or are we noticing things where actually it's not even paying attention to the, um, the content of this CV at all? Maybe it's just paying attention to the names or just the schools listed on the CV, right? Maybe it's not paying attention to the work at all. Um, or, or there's just, there's so many more examples of what you could find in this space. And it's, it's this like, yeah, it's this really exciting project to me of, um, of going in and taking every layer of numbers, turning it into this beautiful, colorful visualization that anyone can th then ask all of the types of questions that, that I'm just bringing up as examples. Uh, so that's a project that I'm really excited about. That project started on, um, on the Clarity team at OpenAI because they had access to that model. Um, and could could do this kind of work. And I'm really excited to to continue to build that. Because um, I think it's, yeah, it's also just such a cool tool to then let anyone play with and and see what they want to look for inside the model. Yeah, I, I played around with, with GPT-2 when they released it and did some transfer learning and all of that. And I, I found it to be such a fun kind of like thing, mostly just like for art. Um, yeah. You know, like you can just do such silly nonsense with it and it's it's a ton of fun. But the idea of actually visualizing, you know, there was all that great stuff um, where people visualize this with like, um, you know, like deep neural nets with image recognition. So I'm really excited to see it done with language. Yeah. So I was just, so a few things. So one is I was just curious, like looking at the image on your site, do the colors correspond to a certain layer? Like I know you were saying that um, you can see what the machine learning system is looking at. Um, so I love the like synesthesia of it, but what do the colors actually represent? Yeah. So the, the visual that's on my website right now, um, so it's a GIF and every like slide of the GIF is a different layer. So you can see it's at the top, it says layer one, and then it goes layer two and then layer three, right? Um, right at the top. And so then as you look at what you're looking at is a paragraph. So I actually put in the first paragraph of Alice in Wonderland into the model. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and what you can see is like, if you look at, let me see, like layer 15 or something like that. Um, I've color coded the whole thing, right? The whole paragraph by, um, by basically. So each of these words is being put into the mathematical like vector space. And that means you can now like see which words are close together. And so what I, the colors are coming from every cluster, every large cluster of words is being assigned a different color. 
And words that are really not put into any cluster, they're sort of like not being assigned um, like large mathematical values, they're close to zero, they're not really being looked that hard at by the model, um, are just like kind of like a neutral color that's fading to the background. So things you'll see are um, at some point it, it's looking, you know, er, early layers of the model look for punctuation. They're just trying to look for like, where do sentences begin and end? And then middle layers of the rep of the model, you see like um, there are certain phrases that are um, well. First, like I guess like nouns and verbs tend to really get activated in the middle of the model. And then as you get later in the model, the ones the the sort of things that get the brightest colors are things like that connect sentences. So things like um, this happened because this other thing happened, or um, a long time ago, um, X Y Z. Uh, said this might be the same color as um, when I was a kid, I thought that this would be true, right? Like these sentences that even though they're using completely different words um, are being considered to mean the same thing by the model become the same color in later layers. So that's sort of like a brief explanation of the visual you're seeing. Fire. I mean, I, f I feel I'm definitely grieving for you. I feel like uh, the school for poetic computation is definitely your your mm. milieu. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. <laughs> and shout out to Tayun. Uh, I don't know if his last name am I saying correctly, but Tayun Choi. Um, he's amazing. Yes. He's the co-founder. And then also he has this project, Distributed Web of Care, that he did mm -hmm. um, as part of this like larger rhizome project, which connects with my whole like fungi obsession. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then two articles that I just wanted to share with you guys that I was kind of thinking through when 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 we were talking about the question of like tender and softness and like what kind of worldviews are, are the technologies creating. Um, there's a piece by Clark Miller that it's a three part essay series on a play comes to busy town. And so I don't know if you remember this from your childhood, but Richard Scarry's uh, Busy Town are these picture books where it like goes basically through labor, people's occupations. Um, and but do you see somebody literally going from the nuclear power plant, uh, bringing the coal on the train? Um, and he like through the work of Richard Scarry's Busy Town, like is an analyzing like why. We're, why are we so deeply unprepared to reckon with COVID-19? Like, why are we creating technologies that are maybe really good at seeing like gene mutations within the virus, but are like not understanding how um, the treatments that are being unleashed are being approved or how policies are like socially mediated um, in the level of detail that kind of Richard Scarry has in his book. So that was one that I was thinking about. And the other is uh, a couple of years ago, February 2017, it was in Places Journal by Shannon Mattern. Um, a city is not a computer, but also similarly, like thinking through, um, there's all these analogies or metaphors that we use kind of in everyday language about how a city is an organism or a city is an information processing center. And sometimes that's like literally as far as like having smart cities and all of those kind of things. But it's also about like, Humanity is such so much more complex and kind of multiplicitous than that. And what are the ways in which like uh, the over reliance on some of these heuristics like um, prevents us from seeing kind of the full picture? So those were just yeah. some things that I was thinking about as you guys were talking. Um, but in the interest of time, 
Um, I think we should scroll to the part where our tradition is to ask everyone, what are you reading or watching or listening to that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Um, and I'd love to start with you, Ria. Yeah, um, I actually just started braiding sweetgrass. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I've heard it read in, um, in just like so many people that are adjacent to me, both on the science side and on the artistic side. Um, it, it's written by this, uh, this someone who identifies as a scientist, but also um, uh, maybe like a, a, a person who's has a spiritual practice and someone who sort of identifies with long lineages of indigenous work um, talking about this intersection and saying like, well, the science itself is poetic and indigenous. Um, and, and that's been a beautiful thing. That's been my bedtime reading lately. Dope, dope. Cool. Elon. What's going on in Venezuela? I can't stop reading about it. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> uh, it's, it ties into like a long history and like there's there's all of these parts of it that have these like deep and horrific connotations but also it's you know it's just this like collection of goofballs who tried to like do a coup and like it's just like it's our dumb bay of pigs and you know Bellingcat has two really good kind of like long form investigations on it um there was an associated press kind of long article on it but like Every piece of content I can read about it, I'm read. It's it's just incredible. Cool, Stanley. Yeah, um, I just finished uh, *Parable of the Sower* with a book club mm. by Octavia Butler, and we're about to start um, *Parable of the Talents*. I think our first meeting is actually this Monday. Um, yeah, and if anyone doesn't know, Octavia Butler is amazing. Uh, very dystopian. Um, story that she's creating and it's just super fitting to what's happening now so i am so excited to to continue reading well all of your suggestions are a little more exciting than mine so i subscribed to nature magazine and i hadn't received like the last five weeks of issues and so i suddenly got all of them all at the same time um and i was really excited about this piece about around the gut brain axis and how it mediates sugar preference um, which might sound kind of dry, but it's really fascinating to me. And I'm just interested in how, um, this idea that there's like neuroimmunology, neuroendocrinology, that our body is like this holistic system and like the things that we are eating, like are affecting like our behavior and cognitive functioning. I think once we're kind of dismissed as female pseudoscience and now are really like coming to bear as, um, being evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine. Um, and the other thing I really appreciate about nature this year has really made a push for people to explain the data that they publish um, and do more extensive method sections so that even if you're from without from outside the field, that you can understand like how people arrive, how researchers arrived at their conclusions. Um, so while I think more can always be done on SciComm, I just really appreciated that about them. Mm. All right, y'all. Well, this is episode eight of the We Be Imagining podcast. Please like us, subscribe on Apple, uh, Stitcher, I almost said Twitter, Apple, <laughs> Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever all the major platforms where podcasts are found. And we want to hear from you. Um, please send us your letters, your comments, your questions at webeimagining at gmail.com. Bye, y'all. 
for and thank you Bye. for coming thank you it's special to talk with you all bye thank you